Started. He'd like to pray for us. As Andy leaves. <laughs> You're going to pray? Yeah. Okay. Dearly Father, thank you for this day and just uh, for letting us all come and worship with you. And uh, I just pray that everyone, now that we all have our school shut down and remote, that you can just keep us looking for opportunities to uh, share the gospel and just uh, love all people and care about them. And I pray that uh, Stephen will have the words to speak tonight and can all be paying attention and pray meeting afterwards. Amen. All right. Okay. So we are on the tail end of how to study the Bible. We're going to be covering two of the rules of Bible study tonight. And then uh, Bobby will be finishing things out next week with the rule 15. And then uh, the week after, I'd like to do a week, although at that point, I think we might be close to Christmas. So we'll see what happens. I got to look at the Wednesdays again. Um, so if we do have one more Wednesday, see, because today is the, what, the 9th? No, we will not. Okay. So that means when we come back on after the first of the year because we're not going to be together on the 30th either more than likely so we'll see we'll see I'll, I'll check on that one but anyway um but when we come back i would like to take all the rules of bible study and actually apply it to individual chapters like i would actually give you sections of scripture on your own for you guys to work it out and then we can talk about it together because until you really start to use it and put it all together it's going to be very difficult to really get exercise in these things okay so the two tonight um really could be nested underneath ones we've done before, similar to last week. We're going to be talking about number 13, the question factor, and number 14, the confirmation factor. Uh, these are pretty self-explanatory, but they are very important. And I'm going to give you a couple different passages of scripture where you can really see how people can take these ones and really mess up different things within the Bible. Okay, so first of all, uh, number 13, the question factor, never base a doctrine on a question. Pay attention to punctuation. So when it comes to a major form of doctrine, we never base any major doctrine from the Bible on a question. And we'll talk about why. And you better make sure you're paying attention to punctuation. And then secondly, number 14, never base a doctrine on a single verse or passage. Um, all of the heretical doctrines that are out there, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Roman Catholics or Calvinism, they tend to go to one or two uh, passages of Scripture that are more obscure, and they focus just on those, and then they, they go completely right with it. And so we'll talk about some examples of that in a minute. The verses that we have here with Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 2, 2 Peter chapter 3, and 2 Timothy 2.15 are all verses that we covered last week. Uh, Matthew 18 talks about you need two or three witnesses. Somebody explain that to me. Why do you need two or three witnesses? Isaac. Credibility. Yes, exactly. And one of the examples we used last week was what? It was an unbiblical example, but it was still an example oh, from the world. Yeah, like in court. You know, when Andy's out there as a police officer and they're gathering evidence, if you're getting witness testimony, you want to try to get witness testimony where you have two or three or more that can corroborate together, and yes, it can establish a certain fact to be true. If you can't do that, then you can't establish truth. So this is a biblical pattern that is, uh, is very relevant, and it makes a lot of sense. So you always want two or three verses. Any major doctrine, like if you say, okay, this is what I believe about salvation, you can make your own statement in your own words about salvation, but you better have two or three verses that will back up what you say. 
about salvation. Uh, Jesus being God, or uh, God being the creator, or, or anything like that, or uh, the rapture, or the second coming, or anything like that, you better have two or three verses you can back up to open up your Bible and show somebody that that is what you believe. Because it doesn't matter what your opinion is. The Roman Catholic Church and other uh, denominations and other really false, false churches, false religions that are out there, they will take one passage, and they will major on that passage, take it completely out of context, and then they will build an entire system of belief around it. And then they'll throw in human tradition and a whole bunch of other stuff in order to justify what they believe. We believe what the Bible says, so you've got to go with it from that perspective. And then the 1 Corinthians 2.13 was our main verse for comparing spiritual things with spiritual, comparing Scripture with Scripture. So if you are going to base a doctrine on a question, if you're going to base a doctrine on a single verse or passage, then you cannot compare Scripture with Scripture. It is the exact opposite. And so you better make sure that you're able to do that. And a lot of times you won't, you won't do that, and you really, you really can't do that until you're put in a position where you absolutely have to. Um, I know that's the way it was in my life. Once I started speaking up with my friends and started talking to them about like why Catholicism sends people to hell or why don't believe in uh, being baptized in order to be saved. I had to actually speak up and say why. I actually had to use my Bible and say this is what the Bible says so I don't believe you need to be baptized in order to be saved. So as you are having conversations with your friends, you're going to want the rules of Bible study. You're going to want it. And so I think, and many of you, you might be afraid to speak up with your friends and stuff, but I'm telling you, until you actually start, I mean, how do you know what you actually believe is true? I mean, for real. Until you're actually challenged on your faith, how do you know what you believe is actually real? When I had the junior high for a number of years, I was big on getting them to doubt what they believed. I mean, seriously, I would, because you have to. If you never put yourself in a position of, I believe this, how do I know for sure? Then how do you know for sure? Can you? You want me to ask that question one more time? No. <laughs> you don't want me to ask it one more time? Well, you can <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So can you if, you, if your beliefs are never properly challenged, can you ever really know that what you believe is true? No, you can't. You can't. So you better start poking holes through what you believe. Otherwise, you might end up in hell one day. And, I, and that's the reality behind it. And I'm being dead serious about it. So you better make sure that what you believe is actually true and that you actually believe what you say you believe. And that you believe it because that's what the Bible says. Okay. And then, of course, I love 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay. So here's some important concepts with number 13, the question factor. Questions are designed to investigate, interrogate, Uncover an answer. So you're blank. There's questions. Questions are designed to investigate, interrogate, and uncover an answer. Sometimes questions in the Bible can be rhetorical to support an answer, but remember that they are questions, not answers. Strange and unbiblical teachings that exist are often based on questions in Scripture, not clear teachings of God and the Bible. So questions are only really meant to investigate, interrogate, uncover, and answer. It's supposed to stir things up. Similar to the question I just asked you. Let's try to get you to think. Oftentimes God will throw a question out there just to get the person to think or to get you to think about what he just said. Be careful not to make one Scripture the basis for any unusual thought or teaching especially if it goes contrary to other scriptures. If you cannot find it anywhere else in the Bible, leave it alone. Leave it alone is your blank. Leave it alone. 
If you can't find it anywhere else in the Bible, leave it alone. If it is true, God will say it more than once. This rule will protect you from bad teaching and unbiblical doctrine. Always remember, God's teachings are established by studying many places in Scripture. So if God wants to establish something, He mentions it all over the place. And so there's a lot of people that <clears throat> are a part of other denominations. Um, they have different weird beliefs um, that they'll always focus like on one portion of Scripture or two places in Scripture or they will. That's all they talk about. Like there are some churches that you go to. Calvinism is terrible about this. Uh, people that believe in hyper dispensationalism are terrible about this. Um, charismatics are terrible about this. A lot of times in their services, it doesn't matter if it's a, you know, a Sunday in the middle of July or if it's a Christmas service. Some way, somehow, they are going to get their little pet doctrine into their sermon because that's all they have because they're wrong about it. We at our church, we don't do that. We preach what the Bible says. And as things are brought up in the Bible, we'll talk about it. But we don't spend, I mean, if anything, if we, if we want to call that we have some sort of a pet doctrine, it's discipleship and seeing the lost get saved and the saved to grow. That's it. I mean, because that's all the Bible is really about from our perspective in the church age. But as far as like justifying weird stances on salvation or this belief about speaking in tongues or in healing or whatever, we don't major on those things because we don't, we don't have to. We believe what the Bible says. But all the other churches that are out there that have these weird doctrines, that's all they spend their time on. And generally speaking, if you're defending yourself over and over and over again, you're guilty. That's usually what happens. And it's the same thing with spiritual doctrines. So let's look at some examples. Examples of questions used to establish false doctrines. Go to Romans 9. Go to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. Now this one we could spend a ton of time on. We're just going to briefly touch on it. But Romans 9 is a key chapter in the Bible that Calvinists will use to justify their beliefs about Calvinism. Anyone give me a quick summary of Calvinism? What is Calvinism? Yeah. Like before you were born, you were predestined to go heaven or hell, and only the holy saints know who's going to heaven or hell. Yeah. And so before you were even born, before you came into existence, God knew if you were going to go to hell or not. And he selected you, not because he liked you better than anybody else, but just he did it at random. And then the other side of it, too, is that if someone is, is a true Calvinist, they will never know if they're actually saved until the day they die. They'll never know if they're a part of the elect. That's the term that they use until the day that they die. Even when it comes to your moment of salvation, like the day that you receive Christ as your Savior, they would say that that day you had no choice in the matter that God actually forced you to get saved because you did not have the ability to make that choice on your own because you're so corrupted by sin. It's crazy. But what they do is they'll take passages like Romans 9 and they will justify their doctrine. And you'll start to see that in Romans chapter 9, there's lots of questions. Lots of questions. But this is usually one of their go-to passages in order to justify Calvinistic doctrine. Okay, so let's take a look at verse, um, let's see here, verse 13 is where we're going to start, but let's back it up for a second because they like to use these other verses. So let's go to um, verse 8. Okay, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, 
Will I come, and Sarah shall have a son? And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, and here's one of their big verses, for the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? There's our first question. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For even the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt, thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter, the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And he continues on with this question. So do you see the question after question? Question after question after question after question. Okay, so they do that because I have had Calvinists that will come up to me and say almost these same see these same questions. So, well, who are you to reply against God? Yeah, it may not make sense to you, but who are you to actually say that God was uh, was unjust in doing it this way? They do this kind of stuff all the time, all the time. So. They use this chapter to justify it. So these extreme views of predestination, they're based off these series of questions. Now let me ask you a question here, okay? In any of the verses that I just read, did you hear or see anything about salvation? If you need to look at it again, look at it again. Look at those verses. Do you see anything in there about salvation? Anybody? No? No, what do we see? What are the words that are used here? Okay, promise, election. Which one? Oh, yeah, love and hate. Esau have I, uh, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Okay? Now, they love that one because they'll say, see, before the kids were even born, God said, I loved him and I hated the other. Do you see how they use that? Okay, but here's the reality behind it. What is he actually talking about here? Go ahead. The history, the history of the nation of Israel. So he's talking about nations. He's not talking about individual people. Now, why would God refer to Jacob and Esau as individual people and yet says that he loves one and hates the other? We're going to give it a shot. Anybody else outside of Sam? Okay, Sam, go ahead. Because Jacob is a picture of the nation of Israel and Esau's picture of the Elites. Yes, but not just a picture, in reality. Because if you were to cross-reference, comparing Scripture to Scripture, Genesis 25-23, Genesis 25-23, it actually refers to and talks to Rebecca and says, two nations are in thy womb. God actually says that, tells her, two nations are in thy womb. Jacob being? Israel. Israel. And then Esau being? Edom. Now, why would God say, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated? Because that's really where we want to come down to it. So we know we're not talking about individual people, so that kind of squashes Calvinism. But why would God say, I love Jacob, Israel, and I hate Esau, Edom? 
Anybody? Carson? Because the Israelites are God's chosen people and the Edomites are one of their biggest enemies. Okay. Yes. But why were the Edomites God's enemies? And why was Israel God's chosen people? Well, Jesus would come through the nation of Israel, for sure. But what made the Jews so special and the Edomites not? Was it that the Jews needed God and it, like, showed his power? Like, Yes, <laughs> kind of. Because the Edomites needed God, too, right? Yeah, but they, they tried to do it without him. Okay. Okay, we're, get, we're thinking... See, I'm asking questions. It's kind of proving my point here. This is supposed to stimulate and <laughs> stir up. Think about it. Because this is important. This is really important. Why did God love Israel? Why did God choose the nation of Israel and then hate or not choose Edom? Okay, let me ask you this. People that are saved and lost today, okay, it's not an exactly good parallel, but it'll kind of get you down the track that I want you to get down. How is it that someone who's lost gets saved and lost people stay lost? Great. So they never come to a place where they know they're a sinner, need a Savior, and they never call upon Him to save them. Right? Now, does God have a desire for all lost people to get saved? Yes. Absolutely. Does God love the Edomites? Yes, yes he, he has to. But he can't because they rejected God. They chose not to follow God in obedience. They had every right to. When you read the story of Jacob and Esau, they actually had the ability to submit to God and actually follow the ways of God. But they refused. They went and they started their own nation. So God chose Israel because Israel said, we're entering into a covenant with you, God. And they willingly did it. And the Edomites, they didn't do that at all. At all. So when it says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, does it actually mean that he loves one and hates the other? No, not at all. It's a comparative thing. The reason why it says that he hated them is because he's drawing a comparison between these two nations. God is displeased with the Edomites, and so he, he used that, that terminology that way. See, Calvinists will take this and they apply it to the individual boys, but when you actually compare it back to Genesis 25, you find out it's talking about two nations, and you find out when you study out the history that the Israelites submitted to God's authority, even though they were disobedient. They still were adopted into God's family. God still made them his. They entered into a covenant together. The Edomites had every opportunity to do it, even at any point in time. If you were born as an Edomite, do you realize that you could have left your land, your country, and become a proselyte and be adopted into the nation of Israel and actually take on all the promises of the nation of Israel by becoming a Jew? So you could have done that. So people that go in the Old Testament, they're like, yeah, God only chose one nation of people, and, and they start going off on this. Hold on a second. You have no idea what you're talking about. So that's just kind of a side note. But I wanted to ask some of those questions because they use this chapter as a way to defend their Calvinistic beliefs. Okay, so there's that one. Let me show you another weird one. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. This one's another really weird doctrine. 1 Corinthians 15. And someone read verse 29. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29. Ben, you can take it. 
else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all why are they then baptized for the dead Okay, so if you just took that verse alone and you didn't read any context, what would you think according to that verse? That's based on a question. Anybody? People are baptized for dead people. I mean, honestly, when you read it, that's kind of what it looks like. The Mormons believe in this thing called baptism for the dead. So they have a very weird doctrine, and it is a sacred doctrine, that if you, like, let's say you convert to Mormonism, and the rest of your family is not Mormon, and let's say your mom and dad, they died, and you really felt like, man, I, they're, they're dead and they're going to perish. They're not going to have everlasting life, according to the Mormon church. You could go and get baptized for your mom and dad, and it will give them a better shot at having eternal life. They can't actually be part of the divine. It's, it's weird. Mormons believe that you can become almost like a god. So you can't, they can't actually become like gods, but they will have some form of an eternal life in the future if you're willing to get baptized for your dead parents. And they use this verse to justify it. What is this verse actually talking about? If you look at the context. Okay, meaning that he, that Jesus, mm -hmm. that he's resurrected from the dead. Okay, because look at it. If you back it up to, let's see here, verse 17. So they, they're, not, they're saying that Christ didn't rise from the dead. Verse 16, for if the dead rise not, then, then uh, is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain and, and uh, ye are yet in your sins. And so then it says in verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So there's this belief that was going around in the Corinthians where they're like, yeah, no one resurrects from the dead. And then Paul's like, hold on a second. If you believe that no one rise from the dead, that means Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he did not defeat sin and death, which means that you're in your sins and that when you die, you're going to go to hell. So that's what he's saying here. And then he works his way through, and he says in verse 26, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So it's talking about the finally once and for all when everything is under God's authority. And then he comes back to this whole issue of, of, uh, of people not rising from the dead. Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? And then he continues. So he's saying that when someone gets baptized, when we, when we baptize anyone here at our church who's been saved, they need to follow the Lord in, in obedience and be baptized. We take them and we say, have you confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior? And they say, I have, because they made a point of decision where they trusted Christ as their Savior. And then we say, based on your public profession of faith and obedience to our Lord's command, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, buried in the likeness of His death, raised to walk in newness of life. Why would we do that if there's no resurrection from the dead? That's what he's saying. We wouldn't do it. And so, if there is no resurrection, then that would be baptism. Buried in the likeness of his death, 
And then they will die. <laughs> yeah. So that's what he's talking about. He said the whole point of this is like, why if 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 resurrection didn't occur, then why do we baptize as if there's a resurrection? That's the question that he's asking. And Mormons take that and they completely flip it. And they make it say something that it doesn't say. Alright, so there's that one. Uh, go to James 2. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James 2. You know this one? Alright, it's all yours. It's all yours. Why don't you go ahead and read it, Emily? <laughs> But wilt thou know, O made man, that faith without works is dead? Okay, so based on that verse, what does it appear to be saying? You have to have works to be saved. Correct. And there are so many people that believe that. There are so many people that believe that. What is this passage actually talking about? Mm. Yeah. It's saying that you can't like tell if you're saved. You have to be able to work it out in your life. Like You should be showing. You should have fruit. Not just... Oh, yeah, I'm saved, and that's it. If you know you're truly saved, you will be doing the work that God has for you. Right. So obedience comes after salvation. It's not required for salvation. Okay. So that's very important. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and verse 10 talks about that. That God has ordained good works that we should walk in them after we're born again. There's a lot of people that will take that, and they will just run with it. Now, I will say this, though. Doctrinally speaking, James is a book during the tribulation that's going to be critical. Because during the tribulation... If you don't got works, you're not saved. Salvation is going to be different in the tribulation. And James is going to be critical for that. Because in the tribulation, you can say whatever you want, but someone can say, yeah, I trust in Jesus. He's my Savior. He's my Messiah. But then what happens if they go get the mark of the beast? They go. They go. They're going to go to hell. <laughs> They're going to go to hell. They will, because that's what Revelation says. Anyone that takes the mark of the beast cannot be saved during, the Revela during Revelation, during the tribulation. It's not possible. Unless, if they take the mark in their right hand, or in their right eye, or in their forehead, in their right eye, that's where it talks about, in the right eye, Jesus was very specific about it. In Matthew, what are they supposed to do? Or... Pop it out. That's what they're supposed to do if they're going to want to be right with God. Because in Revelation, during the tribulation, if you take the mark and you die, you're going to go to hell. So James is actually very applicable to tribulation saints, believers, because there's going to be people all around them that they're like, is that person saved or not? I don't, is, that person, is that person saved? I don't know. What do their works look like? Because if their works don't match up, they're not saved. And I can't trust them because they might actually narc on me and my family. And we could go and get our heads lopped off because they're saying they're saved when really they're not. They're just working for the Antichrist. See what I mean? So it's a whole different ballgame in the tribulation. So, but this is what happens. People will go to places like James and Hebrews and Matthew and other Gospels and they'll pull things out and they start to apply it when that's not, not even what's going on. But this is a great example of how people will take like, this question and they will twist it and they'll make it say something. All right, let's flip it over. Let's keep going. All right, so let's talk about some powerful, thought-provoking questions in the Bible. There, there are so many of these. Some of my favorites are in Genesis 3-9. Um, this one's a good one. So Jesus comes down and he wants to talk with Adam. And he asks the question, where art thou? Now, did Jesus know, did he know where Adam's at? Yeah. You bet he did. He knew exactly where Adam was at. 
But he asked them the question because it was very convicting to Adam. And God will do that with you. He knows exactly what's going on in your heart. He knows exactly what's going on in your mind. He knows that every sin you commit, every vile thing that comes out of your mouth, every, every horrible thought that goes through your head. He knows everything. And there are times where I'm reading my Bible and all of a sudden God will throw something at me. And it's like, oh, because <laughs> he already knows. He wants me to admit it. So God throws things like that in there just to remind me that that's what he does. So I love how God does that. I love Genesis 18, 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Of course he is. But it's a great question to ask. Um, what about Psalm 119.9? Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How can a person be made clean? That's a great question. Amos 3.3. This one's one of my favorites too. Can two walk together except they be agreed? You can't walk with another person unless you're walking down the same path together. I use that uh, verse as a great devotional application for dating and relationships. If you're going to walk with someone who has no interest in walking with God, then you have to compromise. You have to. That's the only way you can actually walk together. You have to agree with them. So that's something that's very convicting to me when I think about it. Or what about, let's see here. Um, I love Romans 8.31. If God be for us, who can be against us? I like that one. Uh, or 1 Corinthians 15.55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And then, of course, Revelation 6.17. This makes me very sad. I think about the people that are going to be around during this time, during the tribulation. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? No one's going to be able to stand. So these are just some really, really good questions. And this is just a small sampling of other questions that are in the Bible. Okay, so examples of using single verses to establish false doctrines. We've already covered some of this. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. We already talked about Mormons using this verse to establish their doctrine for baptism for the dead. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. We've touched on this one a little bit too, but it's always good to look at this one. 1 Corinthians 13. All right, give me a reader. Who wants to read this one? Actually, Carson, go ahead and read this one. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all... Verse 1. What? Verse 1. Oh, though I speak... Wait, wrong chapter? No? 13.1. Okay. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling symbol. Okay. This is the only time in the Bible where the phrase tongues of angels is used. And yet in charismatic circles, they will say that the holy gibberish babel that they speak, that they call tongues, is called the tongues of angels. But this is the only time it's used in the Bible. You can't do that. You can't do that. Um, they try to do that, and they'll use this verse to kind of back that up. But that's absolutely not true. Uh, so this is the tongues of angels. This is the only, the only time it's mentioned in Scripture. It's only mentioned once. And again, I'll say this over and over and over again, but every time an angel shows up, is that angel, is he clearly understood? Absolutely. And what language does he speak every time? Hebrew. Hebrew. Every time. Jewish. English. Oh, English. <laughs> Pig Latin. Uh, <laughs> he speaks Hebrew. Hebrew. Every single time. Every single time an angel shows up, it's speaking Hebrew, that angel, that male angel without wings, by the way, <laughs> is speaking Hebrew. Hebrew. 
So tongues of angels are Hebrew. So when he's talking about here, again, this is kind of similar to the Jacob, have I loved and Esau, have I hated. Paul is speaking here in a very extreme comparative tone. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels. And then verse 2, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now, those things did not exist. Paul did not have, at least I didn't see it anywhere in Scripture. Do you see Paul move mountains at all? No. I didn't. Do you see Paul give everything away that he owned? Nope. Did, he, did we see him give his body to be burned? No. So then why would we think that there's a tongue of angels? He's speaking in extremes. But yet charismatics will use this portion of scripture and they will justify that they are speaking an angelic language between them and God alone uh, that's unintelligible. So that's not true. And when you study out tongues in the Bible, you find out that it's actually a known language every time it's spoken. Okay, so there's that one. Uh, go to John chapter 3. John 3. John chapter 3. All right, John chapter 3. Okay, and then take a look at verse 5. Okay, so Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of, what's the word there? Water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There are many people that will take verse 5 and say, See, you have to be baptized in order to be saved, because you have to be born of water and of the Spirit. So they'll use this verse to even justify that doctrine. But what is he talking about here, Carson? When you're like, given birth by your mom. My, my mom? <laughs> Don't talk about my mom like that. <laughs> yeah. So when you were born, you were in a sack of water, right? Yeah, but the term. My water broke. Okay. Okay. So until you are born of water and of the spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a second birth. The first birth. And then the second birth. So that's what he's talking about. And he says that in verse 6. Because he says, born of water. And then in verse 6, is that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Because that goes back to, again, comparing verse 5 to verse 6. Except a man be born of water, of the flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Born of the spirit. So you can see how, that's, how that lines up really nicely between verses 5 and 6. So t if you take just verse 5 alone, you might get wrapped up and you have to be baptized in order to be saved. But you just read verse 6 in the context and you find out he's talking about the natural birth. The natural birth. All right, and then go to Matthew 16. This is another good one. We'll end with this one. Catholics totally malign this one. Uh, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, verse 18. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to read that one. Who wants that one? I got you. You got it? Yeah. Gracias. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, so what's the Catholic doctrine on this verse? The Catholics love to capitalize on. 
You know, no, you are incorrect, Carson. <laughs> but it probably did have it. No, I'm kidding. You have to build a church on a rock. You gotta be Peter. Peter. <laughs> that Jesus is gonna build his church upon who? Peter. 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 And that's why Catholics will go to this verse and they will say, see, Peter was the first pope. No. Huh? Yeah, that's what they do. Peter was the very first pope because God gave Peter apostolic authority directly from him at this moment. Because then the next verse after it says, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he gave Peter these keys of the kingdom of heaven. What is that all about? Okay, so if you were to just go alone by this, you might think that God's going to build his church upon Peter. But how did God build his church? Who did he build his church on? Jesus. He's the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone, right? He's the cornerstone. And then in Ephesians, it talks about how Jesus is the cornerstone. And it was built upon the foundation of the apostles and no. Well, let's look at it. So hold your spot in Matthew 16. We'll come back to you here in a minute. Ephesians chapter 2. Epihesians chapter 2. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you guys all get this wrong, like one day you're in JBI and you're like, yeah, the book of Epihesians? That's what he said. <laughs> you know what? You know what? Let's just check. Let's just check because I think I think you're onto something. Is it right here? Okay. All right. So, verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. So, the church, the body of Christ, Jesus is the cornerstone, and then you have the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. It ain't Peter. Now, he is one of the apostles, but not upon him. He's, that's, God's not going to build his church on Peter. He built it on Jesus and the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So that's a whole different ballgame. But I will say something very interesting. When he says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, the way that's worded, I would almost guarantee everything that when he says this rock, he's talking about himself. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But Peter was given authority, because look at 19, like we already read, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So God did give Peter authority. He gave him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Heaven. Now, that is very different, because what's the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? Which one's physical, which one's spiritual? Physical is heaven. Correct. You got it. Fitty, fitty chance, and you nailed it. Yeah. The kingdom of heaven is the literal physical kingdom that God's going to establish with the nation of? Israel. Israel. Yes, the kingdom of God is the internal, spiritual, invisible kingdom that God is building through the gospel and into eternity future. So, Peter was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. When he was preaching in Acts 2, 3, 4, it was all about the kingdom of heaven. 
all about. I mean, it was all about the kingdom of heaven. And Christ could have come back at that moment and actually built and established the kingdom of heaven with Peter and the authority that he had from Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And he was even the one that led the first Gentile to saving faith in Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 10. That happened through Peter. Now, if Peter never led Cornelius to the Lord, there's a good chance the Gentiles would have never been saved. Think about that one for a second. Because unto him was given the authority. And God said to Cornelius, go find Peter, have him come and have him preach to you and to your household. And he did. And they got saved. So he was given special authority from God for sure. But it's not what the Catholics think. It's not what the Catholics think. Yeah, Jamie. It also makes sense what you said about him like saying, like, you're Peter, I'm the rock. Because if you go by pattern in how Jesus and Peter's relationship was, he was always like putting Peter in his place and like rebuking him because Peter was always putting himself like in a prideful stance. Yeah. And so that would make sense that God or Jesus would be like, what's that? Like, this is you. This is me. Remember your role. Right, exactly. You know, because yeah. he's always doing that here. Yeah. Issue. Absolutely. Yep, it's true. That's good. All right, so that covers rule number 13 and 14. Any questions? It is hot in here. Yeah, blame it, blame it on Corey. I will. I blame everything on Corey. Yeah. We all do. Yeah, oh. I know. I'm glad Jesus loves him because, I mean. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and pray really quick. And then we will head out after one quick announcement. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and the things that you teach us. And I pray that we take these things and hide them in our heart, that we would actually use it. I'm looking forward to finishing these things out uh, next week and then even taking some passages of scripture and trying to use these things and work it out. So, so help us, uh, help us to any doors you give us that we'd walk through with boldness, knowing that you are for us, not against us, and that we have the answer that this world needs. And so I pray that we would have a um, just a great showing at our Christmas party, that there'd be some people even over the next couple of days that everybody could invite to come to the Christmas party. Um, and even looking forward to winter camp. Um, I can't wait to be together up at Beulah Beach for winter camp. And I pray that we would have um, just uh, some some people that are that are lost that need to get saved that would come to camp and get right with you or even people that are coming that are saved but just not walking with you and that would be a great opportunity for them to be able to uh, really see you as you actually are and how much you love and care for them so we thank you god for tonight we pray this in jesus name amen